when I say making it simple, it's not making it simple, but it's actually choosing better product and then not fussing around with it so much and then just letting it sing and speak for itself. I'll, I'll never stop telling my, my senior teams that as well. Less is more. If it doesn't need to be there, it comes off. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Pubs have changed a lot since the days of the six o'clock swill. The notion of gastropub has been tossed around in the last decade or two, but the evolution of pub grub has been extraordinary down under. These days, the food offering in pubs rivals that of the best restaurants. But how do you strike a balance between great food and a great pub? Dave Clark is the culinary director of the Sydney Collective Group. Dave, how are you? I'm very well, Huck. Mate, it's great to be here. Thanks very much. Uh, it's good to have you on the show. You've got quite a busy uh, job and a huge role uh, with the Sydney Collective Group. Um, how many venues are you looking after? So we're looking after 12 venues currently. I mean, I started five and a half years ago and we had five venues, uh, sorry, six venues and one tra- uh, one not trading food. So I guess um, we've had a, a little bit of expansion over, over the past few years with some pretty large, iconic, beautiful venues. What? What is the difference between some of the venues? You've got quite a few, but are, are they quite different? Um, yep, they're all different. Which is, I guess, that's the, I guess, that's the challenge having having up to twelve venues and then probably fifteen brands within those venues. You know, we've got everything from a, a beautiful modern Australian pub to a, a vegetarian focus to a, a rock and roll Japanese bar. You know, to a um, more of a southern cowl beautiful fish shop up um, up more in the in the Northern Rivers district. So it's quite a quite interesting array of venues that we've got. As culinary director, how, how do you create the such different offerings and um, and can maintain that sort of high level that the group set? I think it's definitely making sure that we understand what the brand is. You know, I think once you deviate away from the brand. Um, and then it just gets a bit lost. You know, um, it's making sure that you know we've always been. You should be able to put. The, the food on the table from starters all the way to dessert and it doesn't look out of place. It all works in harmony and everything just, just flows. And um, I think that's just the big secret of success around making sure that the, that the brands are really in line with, um, with what they are and what we agree they are and then what the consumers know they are, you know, so. You've had a fascinating career working in um, big groups and, um, and big restaurants as well, uh, which I want to explore what was food like for you, though, when you were young? <laughs> when I was young, I guess Hunter Valley growing up, um, there wasn't, I guess, a lot of choice. But um, I guess I'd have to say that well, my, I'll go back to my dad's ethos. He never believed in takeaway. He never got takeaway, which was a bit of a punish for me. But I think it's where I started my journey with that. I mean, I wouldn't know about Maccas unless I got a driver's license and then I, I drove past it. Um, so I think growing up where I think the ethos was if, if you can do it better yourself, do it at home. And then when you go to restaurants, you're really looking for quality and an experience, you know, and I, um, I grew up with that and I've got, I've got two young daughters now that have grown up in a hospital family now as well. And, you know, it's a, it's a fight for, it's a fight for oysters, Huck, with 14 and 12 year old girls. It's a, it's, it's strange looks you get when you're at Yumchar and you, and the kids are ordering honeycomb tripe and, you know, uh, slow cooked tendons, you know, you, you de- definitely, you definitely feel the, the hospital in the vein quite quickly when you start 
growing up and immersed amongst it. Uh, what lured you to a career in hospitality? Do you remember those sort of first couple of years in a commercial kitchen? Well, I remember the first couple of years, but I think, you know, like I, I, I remember from when we, my sister and I used to line up in the kitchen when dad was doing a roast to make sure that the, the skin ratio was fair on all plates, you know. I think coming through, you know, coming through high school and getting a, a catering gig, I lasted a day on the floor as a as a waiter, quickly ended up into the dish pit, into the and then into getting trained on how to cook and then to, you know, how to um how how to portion food and just get into it all. And I think that like like a lot of chefs out there, I guess, very creative, attention a span of a goldfish basically, but what you can do with your hands and the pleasure and the attention to detail and that sort of that next bit. Like there's there's a creative there's a creative bit there's 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 this 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 sense of wanting to be able to absolutely execute something and being so proud of it i think getting getting that as a as a young chef and really going through it is a is a big part of where my journey started well take us back to when you were young what were the really integral sort of moments and venues that you worked in as you were building your career well i think when i first started like straight out of doing my hsc like i worked for a chef called barry mickledron who was a he was a friend of the family um there wasn't any uh let's say i wasn't favorited the first the first moment i walked in there it was don't put your jumper there what do you think and get in there so it was it was not it was not a free kick at all but i think that going through and then and then learning from the ground up and i guess i i had a taste for it i mean i wasn't sure after the first week but i guess when you really determined and then and then i guess failure is not an option and then all you want to do is succeed and to and to give it a hard crack I think that if, if you want to do anything, you'll do it and you'll do it well, but it takes dedication and that takes a lot of, you know, a lot of commitment to actually be able to do that. The first um, part of your career was in Percolbin and Newcastle, but you made the move to Sydney. Um, what, what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was amazing, Huck. I mean, I remember being, I think it was a second or third year apprentice where I conned some of my mates into driving down to, to Sydney one night. We ended up driving all the way. We ended up into Rockpool. I mean, it didn't have a booking in there. And this was like, what was this? This is 98, 99. Went in there with, you know, a couple of 19-year-old uh, kids. You know, my first experience of Sydney really was that when I sat down and I had his tortellini with prawns, I had his crab omelette, and then I finished with a date tart. I remember coming back and going to my dad just like, Jesus Christ, you know, like I, I never thought it could be like that. I think when I look back at the hunter back then, you know, doing a rare quail breast or or being innovative and then having a lot of fun with the food, it wasn't quite there. So I wanted to really, really get in ingrained into it all and take the next step. And to be honest, I, I wanted to move to Sydney for, for two years and that was 19 years ago, you know, and I'm still at it. So definitely changed my life. Well, you spent a lot of time at key restaurants. Do you have any stories of, of what it was like in that kitchen? Oh, look, when I started in Key, it was, a, look, it was, it was an a la carte restaurant. Um, it was obviously three hats. It was, it, was, it was the top of it all. And I guess look, I came to Sydney and I had a choice of working with Damien Pignolet, who's one of my heroes over in Bistro Moncur, or, or leading in with, um, with Pete Gilmore. I made the decision uh, to work with Pete. And I think that kitchen then, it changed a few different ways, but still it was the integrity of produce. It was the textures and harmony and balance. Um, I think just a couple of days in there, and I guess you know when you when you look at rosters back in the day, and then they actually had on or off on them. There was no time frames on them, so you're in there at eight, 
you're making sure that you're all boxed off. There'll be beers in the afternoon, you know, and then you come back and then you do the service. But I think, you know, back then you'd also, you'd definitely have to prove yourself. And there was a trial period that you that your mates would put you through to make sure you're, you, you, they were happy with you. So it was a big, I guess, induction and making sure that if, if you don't fit in with a the crew, then it doesn't work. But the food was like the quality of produce and just, just Pete's approach. It was just, it was absolutely mind blowing to me about, about how it was all treated. You know, I started in there as a CDP after a year, I was a junior Sue. And I think about, um, about a year after that, I was just two IC and I was there for five and a half years. And it was like, I, 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 I could, I don't think I've heard anyone say anything ill about Pete and they've got no right to because it's absolutely an institution. He's the nicest guy I think I've ever met. He's, he's a top bloke. Well, Peter Gilmore's influence on our culinary landscape is incredible. What's he actually like to work for? Do you have any stories of the interactions that you had? Um, oh, look, I think with with Pete, like I think he's he's always he's always thinking and hunting and looking and he's always like he's never thinking what am i doing on the weekend right you know how could be it'd be times when you're looking like in the middle of service and you see pete just staring down the line waiting to serve another order and he's just got that concentration and that you know the the the, the fingers on his chin and he's thinking and he's he's humming to himself almost and you just we just knew there was something that was going to come out of this that obviously we needed to get into and to and to help execute and get it away but it was it was some of the most exciting times I think that um, I've ever had in my in my culinary career. Though you know, it was it was just absolutely mind blowing. You, you left Key Restaurant and took on a, a major role with the Chop House, a very different style of restaurant. What, what sort of impact did that have on you? That that change. Well, I think through my time, like spending spending five and a bit years with Pete, um, like that's very much a special occasion, and the and the, and the top of the tree as far as food goes and and it's and that's still the same for me um what i really wanted to get into was more of an everyday format and to really hone my skills around what does that mean and how do you execute that and how do you attract customers regularly how do you look after the cbd cbd district and and still hit all the marks with you know with value for money and um and choice and you know what they really go for so i mean the chop house was a project that i started um, with Kingsley back in the day as well. We wanted to bring a New York-style steakhouse into the Australian market by focusing on modern Australian produce, you know, modern Australian food, modern Australian produce, but then the integrity of the actual, the way that we cooked the meats. I think we had one of the first Montague Brawlers coming in, did a lot of, lot of work around the meats and the proteins and getting things cut certain ways. And, you know, the salad section there we had was all about the chopped salads and bringing that to life. And then to just, to, just to bring that, Bring all that, um, bring all those 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 flavors that that are coming back over from New York, but then really make it a, a, into the Australian market. It was a lot of fun. The your time at Chop House was was also about really connecting with um, producers and championing what they do. Do you have any stories of of the connections that you made? The connections in there, like I, I, I we we really went out, and I guess coming out of Key, I, I probably wasn't ready to like I, I was always wanting to hunt for, for for the best of the best you know if we're getting things made like we're using herb and spice and getting things shipped up buying oysters direct from broadwater oysters then they're actually posting back up to us working with work working especially with the lamb and the beef and the wagyu and you know if it's between it's between buying pallets and, and getting a mage a certain way i was getting i was getting um our um our beef fillets dry aged 
for, for two weeks um, and then they were getting trimmed and brought in. So then we can do a Capaccio that was, you know, e- equal to what I thought was Harry Harry's famous um, Capaccio, you know. And then it's just it was, it was just a lot of fun. Even the seafoods and, like, it needed to be fresh. It needed to be the best I can get my hands onto. But also it needed to be priced so the value for money and the perception of value were, were, were it's just a no-brainer, you know. One of the fascinating parts about your career was the link with Jamie Oliver and um, Jamie's Italian in Australia. Um, take us into that group and, and what it was like being part of the momentum of that. So I didn't know what I was in for when I took that role on. I think I hummed and art about it for for a while. Um, you know, I was thinking, oh, yeah, like, you know, they're not going to want a non-Italian guy to, to head this off and – Whatever else, it was it was pretty daunting, and I just played it down. Of course, you know Jamie. Jamie's a top bloke; like he's so down to earth, and he's just a really nice guy. But his team were looking to relaunch into Australia. They um they come they they, they got told about the chop house, and I think the ethos and the way that the care and attention to our you know to our producers to our product um all over it was it was a really it was it was a really strong strong piece. So he sent, I'll call them some of his spies, but he had a few of his guys come over and have a look and unbeknownst to me, um, basically just try, just trialling and seeing how, how the fit worked. And they were um, pretty, I think they were pretty impressed and wanted to move forward. Um, and I guess jumping into that, we opened up the Sydney venue, probably did about three and a half months and on product and, you know, where it's all from and additives and preservatives and colourings and Everything was free range, and I had—I think I had the first nitrate, first nitrate-free salami done in Sydney, um, which was pretty pretty big back then to get that approved, you know. And that—that—that that, that was—I um, needed a lot of help and a lot of influence to, to get that done. But now it's on trend now, you know. Now now people see the nutritional benefits with that, you know, um, which is which is pretty cool. But then when you're looking at the fisheries. You know, you're looking at free range eggs, and like I, I had to research and study all this stuff, and I was horrified when I actually saw what's actually out there in the big bad world when you look at it, right? So um, it, was, it, w- it was an interesting time. I mean, rolling, rolling into an open, I think with, with Sydney, it was, you know, no one's going to line up. You know, I've still got that arrogance in my head. No one's going to line up. It's just going to be a restaurant. It's all good, you know. And I think there was about a 500-metre line for the first month we opened that joint up. Make, yeah, it's crazy. Making pasta in the front window. I still say pasta when it's supposed to be pasta, right? But I just it just got burned into me, like. But like, the, you have an extruder out there, you know, and they, they're making they're making one of the ten varietals of, of pasta that we've got, and they're running it through the crowd and into the kitchen, and we're just basically chucking it straight into the soldered water and finishing off. It was just, it was just an amazing, amazing experience. But then you've got basically you've got thirty five young cooks, or even just people with no experience. So the training platforms was a one. The food was simple, relaxed. It was homestyle cooking, but the value for money—I think it was like twelve bucks for a, a small bolognese and like sixteen or seventeen for a, for a, for a large. You know, I've got brat pans in there, and I'd be making you know one hundred and forty kilos of you know our, our three different sauces that that we use for that. So it was just like it was just big numbers, but it was all free range and it was all quality product and San Manzano tomatoes and free range this and. Lion caught that. So I think that's where I really, really like learned a lot about the respect for produce and also price points. You don't need to rip people off. A busy restaurant, you know, like, yes, you need to make money, but bums on seats is what we're talking about, right? So when you start looking at the mechanics behind that, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. But it's a lot of work. 
you know, a thousand covers a day in a 160 seat restaurant, you know, for, for months on end. Um, is uh, you, you, you go through a fair bit of product, Huck. Um, what, what were the challenges involved? It was incredibly popular when it, as you mentioned, when it, when it landed, what were the challenges in just orchestrating that? So I think the challenges was like, I had to learn, I guess, the organizational structure and supporting people like working in, in, in smaller businesses, fine dining businesses, and especially, especially back then, how you could treat people and, and, and how you could just speak to people. Like, I guess the biggest thing I learned is just you've got to humble yourself. You need to put yourself in their shoes. If you're not willing to do it yourself and then lead by example and, you know, like, like work beside someone, it's no point just pointing finger and yelling at someone. That's old school. Like if you're going to correct someone, then go around and show them how to do it. But make sure when they do it right, you bloody make a big shout and fuss about how bloody good that was you know like with with that like it, it's all confidence you know uh, without confidence the chefs are like I, I don't want to be here with confidence and i got you and we'll get through this and let's do that and that's amazing it's like all of a sudden it's like shit i can do this i can do this these numbers you know and i've still got i've still got chefs that i catch up with from from back through that era that's just like I'd never experienced that in my life and it wasn't how busy it was. It was the mateship and just getting through the battle every day and nailing it and being proud of it. You know, it was pretty special time. You mentioned that Jamie Oliver is a, is a great bloke. What was it like when you first met him and, and what was it like working with him? So I guess first time I, first time I met him, we got flown over to the UK um, in his studios. Um, and he, I remember he was in a, he was in a glass office and he was having a meeting about doing a, a charity for kids and that sort of stuff. And it was dragging on and was sitting on the couch outside and nervous as hell, sweating beads, like just got off a flight, shipped straight in there. And then look, seeing his piercing blue eyes staring at you th- when he's in the end of his meeting, waiting for the next ones to come in. He has a real soft spot. Like he calls them Aussies, but for Australia, you know, it's like, it, it means a lot to him. I think going through his, going through his career, Australia was one of the, I think the the biggest supporters early on of, of of the work that he was doing. So he really, really cared about making sure that he wanted representation in Australia that really just believed in him and his brand and to 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 cook it like it was cooked in the UK, you know? So yeah, meeting with him and now I remember shaking his hand and he used to call his hands butcher's hands. Like he's got the biggest hands I think that I've shaken of another bloke. Like it's big. It like surrounds your hand, and I think that we we went we went through we went through the whole yeah this and that and it's great to meet you all that sort of stuff. And then he checked. I remember checking with his assistant, and then he wanted to know what he was doing tonight. And then she pulled out this 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 diary that was like for the next three years he was booked out like it was a big book. And then when I um when he looked at it, he goes nah I want to cancel tonight. I want to I want to take the Aussies out for dinner. So we end up going to the River Cafe that night. Um, and the River Calf, obviously, institution, we, we had a table. I think there were six of us. It was on a table, a round table of four tops. So we all squished in there. And he just said, just we'll, we'll start from one of everything and just one at a time and we'll share around and we'll just have a chat and, and we'll just go through that and, and whatever else. So I was squished up pretty close right beside him, you know, sharing a fork with Jamie back, you know, 
back then it was like, oh my God, like this is this pretty cool dude and down to earth. And, you know, then he drove us home and cruising around and oh, I was just, it was just an experience, just a really, really nice guy. But he was so interested in the producers and then what are we looking at and who, who do you trust and who can do this? And, you know, I'm saying I'm working, I've got the nitrate free slime and he's like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's, that's absolutely, that's absolutely outstanding. And then getting Buffalo Boccaccini's made, you know, like, and then it's just like, we, we did have to bend over a bit. I think they didn't quite grasp that we do have to travel a bit, our product a bit further to get it over here. But I really wanted to showcase our olive oil, you know, our cheeses as much as possible. And our, and like he just he just fell in love with our product, you know. These days, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you're the um, culinary director of the Sydney Collective. Um, how different is this role compared to everything else you've done in your career? I think going through and then I think being an ambassador for a brand, running a single venue, um, you know, like you can really get your, your head into that and then really knock it out of the park. But I think once you start talking multiple businesses with multiple personalities, with multiple brands, you know, um, really, really looking at the strength of the teams, um, we, we're really focusing on behaviours at the moment. Um, being leading into our values, and it's 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 so interesting to see like the positive outlook that we've got, and then how that can touch everyone, and then basically putting I think making like my dream is for everyone that works with the Sydney Collective to run the business like they're running their own business. That's when you know that you're there, you know, and that's and that's what. We're, we're, the, we're, that's what we're trying to to really instill in everyone. Going, we want you to run these businesses like you own it. We want you to to have that. You know, we've got a long way to go with the Sydney Collective, and there's a, there's so many opportunities. We can't do it without the quality of staff, but then we can't do it as a management team unless we're living and exhibiting those behaviours and leading by example. You know, the company has um, doubled in size since you've come on board from six venues to twelve. Where do you start when you're creating an idea for once you have the location? I think it's a it's, it's a group effort. Just just look. I, th- I think the, the the area, the brand that we're looking at. If it's in a CBD, we you know it's it's probably a bit easier. But I think you don't want to go off the reservation. You need to make sure that you can execute it. You know, you need to make sure that um, I guess the food stylings are relaxed enough. It's not, it's, you're not touching the food too much. Um, it's generally making sure that like less is more, but then the quality of the flavor. And then, you know, we've got venues. So if you go coastal and you go right coastal, beautiful. If you go ceviches or you go lime, you go chili, you got this, or you got barbecued meats, you got this, like you, you, you can really get a sense of what would work in that area. I guess I think we, we pride ourselves on not not looking at local competition. Like we, what what we want is we want world class. We want world class to be the world class hospitality group, but we're not looking local for our competitors to see who are be- who we're benchmarking against. You know, um, we've got Sarge just he's just really leading us and just going like world class means like what's the best venue in the world that's doing that, and that's who we're benchmarking ourselves against. The the group has a, a string of amazing um, pubs. Well, what does it take to create a great gastro pub? Gastro pub consistency number one, value for money number two, quality of product needs to be up there as well. You know, I mean, it's it's. It's making sure that you're not overreaching what what I guess you're trying to achieve. We've got some venues that are more 
rural based, you know, and that, and that relies heavily more on the classics and making sure you're not being too adventurous. And, but then you need to nail that out and the portion sizes need to be right. And, you know, that just needs to be absolutely singing. Well, then you, you get more of your, more of your market pubs. And then that turns more into a, a, a relaxed dining venue. That's more like a, it's got a restaurant feel to it, you know? Um, and I think with, with that as well, like less is more quality of product, um, making sure that you've got the right, I think the right DNA, like modern Australian pubs have got a, a, a long list of, of pub classics and pub favourites, which that's cool. But you also need to make sure that it all works together. You know, you need to make sure that um, there's nothing that, that that stands out that, that shouldn't be there. I think that's that's a big trick right there. Is, is there a venue that you've opened in uh, the last couple of years that um, that you can tell us about and created that um, really speaks of um, that sort of benchmark that you're setting? So I guess the one the one in, look the interesting one I've got it's it's the Imperial Hotel in Erskineville that didn't have a food brand in it um, when we first started. Obviously, it's it's a two story beautiful pub. Um, we're in. Um, in the south of uh, Cali, and then we're, we're going through. I guess I was having a look at the um, a lot of the vegan restaurants and gluten free restaurants, um, just to see what what was actually going on. But w- when I went through these, I had a look, and then everyone was smiling and happy and putting away margaritas, and and then the food was, the food, like the I think the acid levels and the textures and the flavors. I mean, you wouldn't think that, you know, jackfruit and that sort of gear would taste any good, right? But in, in with, with the right ratios and, and then with, with, the right, with, with the right finesse and how all that goes, it just turns into a, an experience. But it's not until you eat it where you're not heavy and bloated like you've had protein and dairy and all these bits and pieces, right? It feels really light. And then you actually feel like you've had some substance too, like some, actually some, some good gear going down here. So when we look back, I guess, in the Erskineville market there, I really wanted to go vegan, gluten-free, but it's probably a bit before its time. So we settled on more of a brand where we've got a vegetable and vegetarian-focused, plant-focused menu, but then the side additions ended up being – I had solid fuel um, uh, ovens and grills in this place. So then the sideshow really was the proteins and the fish – and then what, what we found is like all the dishes on the actual menu, you can actually interchange and that all works. But then if you, if you go a grilled hanger steak or a, um, a wood oven roasted um, a snapper or, 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 or you know, uh, um, South Australian um, beautiful calamari, if you're putting that through and serving that really simply, what we found is like you're, you're actually creating your own adventure by ordering these dishes and then getting some proteins and then everyone was just sharing and mingling and getting amongst it. So it was a it was a very very interesting very interesting and like it's very tasty product as well you know it's it's, it's a fun way to eat. The last couple of years have been pretty challenging for everyone in hospitality and and pubs were hit pretty heavily as well. Did what sort of um, impact did it have to the operations of what you do? Oh, like, um, uh, you could say a lot would be an understatement. I mean, I guess if we say that. The start of that year, we hit COVID, right? The start of that year, we've got bushfires out of control. Then we end up, I think we were having floods and then we had COVID. So then in COVID, then a lot of staff ended up going back. A lot of my key staff ended up going back overseas because they had to go back to the family. It was very, very unknown to what was going down. So then 
they shut the borders. You know, we open back up again. We close back down again. Trying to find hospo staff is just it's just it's just near impossible. Like people coming back, their emotions are on edge. They don't know what's going on. It's a, it's a very difficult time. Um, you know, and then like just recently, like trying to get through with the staff that we've got. And then, you know, we're limiting the numbers that we can do purely because it's, it's we just haven't got the staff to actually to do that. We haven't got the wait staff to execute what we're doing. So we're throttling it down. But on top of the lack of staff, we've got protein prices that went up 30%. You know, we've got seafood and like prawns and scale fish, you know, is up 10, 15, 20%. You know, the, just the cost of diesel for, for suppliers, our um, veg going through December has been underwater for the start of December, which, you know, that's just had an impact. We've got no one to plant. We've got the, obviously with the restrictions on the travellers, we haven't got working holiday visas. So the poor farmers haven't got people to help plant, harvest and produce their, produce their, their vegetables. So now we, haven't got, now we haven't got the luxury of having the produce that we need to get through it all. So, I mean, it's just, it's just like an absolute, like I think everyone that's able to stay open now are just looking back going, well, it can't get any worse, can it? And if you see someone that doesn't touch a piece of wood when they say that, tell them touch them wood bloody quickly, you know, because it's just we've been through the, the works and everyone in hospitality needs some support. I just heard the other day, right, now, the, the visas coming over, yes, we can get people coming over to work in Australia, which is fantastic. But a 482 visa just got announced. It takes seven months to process. I mean, how's that fair when we haven't got staff to work? And that's up on the government. Like, I'm just like, we just need some assistance by fast-tracking some amazing visa staff from overseas to help the hospitality market in Australia. And I don't understand why they're making it so hard to do that, Huck. It's just, it's just stupidity. You mentioned at the top of the show that you know, as a group, you're just sort of getting started and there is a lot of optimism and potential um, as we're sort of moving away from uh, the last two years with the challenges as well. But what, what, what can we expect in the next sort of year or so from the group? Um, well, this, the Sydney Collective, like we're looking to expand, but we, we, we want to make sure that, we're able to execute it. But, I mean, for, for businesses, for, 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 for some new businesses coming on that's going to be, you know, I, I would say not so much around the city market because that's pretty saturated. I mean, we're looking at within the Northern Rivers, we've got three beautiful venues up there, four venues up there now, sorry, um, which are absolutely looking amazing. So, I mean, if, if we're looking a bit north of that or, you know, we're looking out a bit west, um, it's, I think, I think, We've got some very large iconic venues. I mean, I'd like to see, I guess, a few more of the smaller, smaller size venues that we can really hone and chip in. You know, like we're opening up in um, Circular Quay in um, in Feb March in a beautiful French restaurant that's you know two hundred and sixty seats outside on the water, um, looking at the bridge and the in the in the Harbour Bridge. You know, like those sort of projects there are absolutely breathtaking. And then I think. There's a lot of opportunities um, with these beautiful venues, you know, like, um, and I think the quality that, we're, that we're, we're, we're aiming to execute at and the service standards that we're aiming to execute at, I think that's just going to naturally lift and lift the collective um, where we want it to be. You've had some incredible roles and in looking after so many venues now that are so different. What is it that you love about what you do? 
Um, if I think the the challenge of it all, <laughs> but I, you know what, I think creating high performance teams is something that's been drilled into me over and over again. Like the actual connection that you have with your management teams, and then the feedback and um, uh, like the quality of of the product and just it's just with with that without that i think without those teams and with that like the full understanding of where we're going and who we are you know and this is how we're going to get there i mean if you can't have an honest conversation you know it doesn't work um so i think that's that's pretty important um without without the without our our senior teams then we wouldn't be able to grow to the way we're growing it's been a, a pretty uh, rough couple of years, but what are the positives to come out of it for you? The positives to come out, I think that, I think that the way that, I think the way we look at food is is definitely a food and service. You know, I think it's definitely a, a bit of a focus point. Look, I've been looking now, like with a lack of staff, that, that there's a lot of there's a lot of simplifica- simplifications that we need need to need to make. You know, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot. I think it's just getting back to the core product. When I say making it simple, it's not making it simple, but it's actually choosing better product and then not fussing around with it so much, and then just letting it sing and speak for itself. You know, um, it's, there's 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 so much in that that I think that I'll, I'll never stop telling my, my senior teams that as well. Less is more. If it doesn't need to be there, it comes off. But how good's that oil? How good's that vinegar? How good's that steak? Are you using the right salt, you know? And is a chargrill okay? Or do we need to get a, a different apparatus dragged in here so then we can actually execute it at the top standard, you know? Dave, uh, what you're doing there is absolutely incredible and look forward to seeing what you uh, bring to the table in the next couple of years. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a little bit of your story. Um, Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Cheers, Huck. Thanks a lot, mate. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>